everybody, and welcome to Focal Points, the IMD Imaging Podcast. My name's Sam, and I'm going to be doing the hosting and emceeing duties for today. So winter is coming and it's time for the Christmas edition of the IMV Imaging Podcast. So it's thrilled you can join us here today. And as usual, I've got the rest of the IMV Imaging clinical team joining me for our discussion today. So a big welcome first off to Laura. Hello, everyone. And we have Harriet. Hi, everyone. And also, it gives me great pride to introduce the newest member of the IMV Imaging Clinical team today, Amy. So, Amy, welcome to the team. And you want to say to the team and to the audience with the podcast. And uh, do you want to say hello and tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Amy, and I joined the clinical team in October of this year. I graduated from Bristol Vet School back in 2012 um, and I did an integrated veterinary pathology degree at the RVC. I have worked in farm animal, mixed and small animal practice as well as a year working with APHA. If I really had to pick, my two favourite parts of being a vet are imaging and teaching. So as you can imagine, I am very excited to have joined the clinical team and I'm really looking forward to meeting everybody out and about. Thanks, Amy. Well, it's great that you're here and it's always this month, um, each time on our podcast episodes, we're going to be talking about a topic related to the field of diagnostic imaging. But um, as a bit of a, a bit of a change from the normal this month, we're going to be talking about some of the CPD that we saw at uh, London Vet Show. And hopefully whether you've had the opportunity to, to attend or you decided to give it a miss or you couldn't make it, it was great to be back in, in person again, meeting people at a congress and getting out to see some CPD. So two of our clinical team members, Laura and Harriet, managed to get to attend uh, the CPD streams at London Vet Show this month as well. So we thought we'd go through their highlights and just what's um, being shown up in the CPD and maybe some interesting points or topics that they've taken home from it. So suppose to, to kick us off, I'll hand over to Laura, who, who was attending some of the equine streams at this year's event. So what, what did you see, Laura? What was, um, what was sort of hit home to you through the CPD um, sessions at London Vet Show this year? Well, this year it was very nice, actually. There was a whole stream um, throughout the day that was dedicated to diagnostic imaging. So there was quite a lot of content around imaging, and I have chosen what I found some of the most interesting topics or lectures to be. And it all kicked off with um, a talk by Jonathan Dixon, who completed his residency imaging training at the RVC, um, on non-conventional radiographic views, which I thought was a really interesting topic to discuss. Well, a conventional view is usually pertains to the four orthogonal views. So that usually will include a lateral medial, a dorsopalmal plantar, and two oblique projections. And so non-conventional views are usually lesion orientated. So they're often in addition to those conventional projections, or it's where conventional projections of the orthogonal views are not possible to acquire. So perhaps in the stifle or the shoulder, for example, where the joints are near the trunk and it is just not possible to get these views. 
So the general principle often is to improvise or adapt, essentially to skyline the lesion or the area of interest. And so whilst a lot of the views will be, I'll be discussing that were discussed by Jonathan, you know, have a, a certain protocol, actually someone at some point has improvised to make this into essentially a non-conventional view. And so the same can be done with any uh, region of the horse. If you have a suspicion of a lesion in a certain place, using your sort of three-dimensional knowledge of anatomy, you can use that to skyline that area, wherever it is on the horse. So we'll start at the head of the horse and work backwards. So we started by discussing views of the teeth in the head. Now we know teeth projections are notoriously difficult. The amount of superimposition is incredible from the sinuses, uh, the bones of the skull of the horse, and then of course of the teeth themselves. It's very hard to separate the maxillary and mandibular uh, arcades from each other. And so there's a lot of superimposition from both sides and also top and bottom of the mouth. So he discussed relatively simply an open mouth views. They can uh, be done relatively easily, easily these days. There are some certain uh, dental plates that can be used where there's a small dental plate that is protected by a case and they are designed for going into the equine mouth. Equally, it is possible to sometimes make these protective cases on a sort of a DIY basis. But of course, um, we know how strong the horse's mouth is. And so we do need to be careful. What we do want to avoid is the horse chomping down on the DR plate, which is a big issue. There's also um, the potential to use what is similar to a gag to displace the maxillary and mandibular arcades from each other. And so there is one that is produced by Podoblock. So literally it is like a gag and it can be used to displace the mandible from the maxillary from left to right. And then using a dorsoventral view, um, this is really good for checking uh, after tooth extraction whether there are any remnants of tooth within there. This, can, this is a really, really important part of tooth extraction is to make sure there's no piece of tooth left in there. And especially when there's a small remnant, they can be really, really difficult to identify on a standard orthogonal radiographs. But by using this technique and also by being aware that the, the angle of the teeth within the mandible and the maxilla vary depending on the sort of rostral to arboral location. And so if you look at a, a lateromedial radiograph, you notice the angle for the teeth of each different tooth root is very different. And so if you accommodate that angle to be completely parallel to that, then you can see a really beautifully down into um, where the teeth have been extracted from and see quite clearly if there are any remnants. So that's a really nice view to use. Um, he also discussed uh, the temporomandibular joint, which is perhaps a region that we don't assess that frequently, However, it can be implicated um, in terms of head shaking, sometimes performance issues with horses. So, so I think it's an important um, area to understand how we can image it. And um, he described a technique where we use a rostral 45, ventral 30 degrees lateral, caudal dorsal oblique. So that always sounds very complicated, but basically if you come from a lateral lateral projection 
So you are on the same side as the, the TMJ of interest. Come rostral 45 degrees. So you're pointing backwards towards the opposite ear and then point the, the, um, the generator up by 30. So you're coming from ventral by 30 degrees. That's the angle that you're looking to take. And what's really nice about this angle is that you will shoot straight through the articular surface and space and get some really important information about the, uh, the health of the joint. Um, he also discussed a rostrocaudal oblique for looking at the occiput. Again, this is a region where there can be uh, fractures and fragmentation. So whether that's traumatic in origin or as an avulsion fracture from the attachment of the nuchal ligament. Again, this is a, as, as a little bit of sort of, you know, being aware of the anatomy, shoot and, and um, skyline the area of interest. So it is literally pointing from rostral to caudal, so you're shooting right between the ears, and that should skyline the occiput. Now, these fractures can be identified on lateral-lateral radiographs. However, the, the occiput, of course, has a certain width to it. It you know, accommodates the entire space between the ears. And so by doing this projection, you can see whether it is on the left or the right-hand side, um, or whether it's involving the entire left-to-right left surface of the occiput, which can help with management. What pathologies would you be looking for? I know you can use the workup for head shakers looking at TMJ joints, but would you be looking for any other pathology in that joint? Um, it would Well, with radiography, it would mainly be osteoarthritic type changes that we tend to see. Moving down to the neck. Now, again, the neck is perhaps a region that people do consider quite a lot um, in sports horses or uh, leisure horses alike. And... Um, whilst it can be quite difficult to get some some good neck radiographs in the field with respect to exposure values, especially when we're talking about the caudal or the base of the neck, there are other projections that can give us more information, and these would be oblique views. So the uh, angle of obliquity varies typically between 45 to 55 degrees. Now, this is because the angle where the articular process joints attach to the vertebrae varies between cranial to caudal. So if you're um, imaging the cranial articular process joints, having a steeper angle of 55 degrees is more appropriate. And when um, going towards the base or the caudal aspect of the neck, more of a 45 degree angle is appropriate. And this is really nice where you can tell we can tell from lateral lateral radiographs whether there is enlargement or abnormalities associated with the articular process joints, but it's very hard to impossible to tell if it's unilateral or bilateral, and if it is unilateral, which side is it on? And this can be really important with regards to um, articular um, medication or analgesia for diagnostic purposes and similarly correlating it with the clinical picture because as we know neck pain uh, as a result of uh, articular process joint osteoarthritis does occur and can be a performance issue however there are a lot of horses that have neck related stiffness which is actually as a secondary observation to pain uh, causing lameness or poor performance which is distant to the neck so it's important that we can um, correlate that with the clinical picture and do further diagnostics so moving down to the distal limb um, 
Again, feet x-rays are something that I think we do all the time, probably the most common area to radiograph in a horse. But that said, there are additional views that may be of particular use. And the ones that Jonathan discussed were the flexed oblique views. Now, um, a lot of people don't include these as part of their conventional radiographic procedures. In fact, when I was in practice, these were included in every single foot radiograph um, study that we took because they give you a huge amount more information, not only about the articular surfaces of the various interphalangeal joints, the attachments of the collateral ligaments and um, palmar ligaments, but also specifically they give you a lot more information about the palmar processes of the distal phalanx and of um, the ungular cartilages, especially when they are ossified. And so certainly if there's any suspicion of fracture of, of the palmar processes of the uh, distal phalanx, then these oblique views, flex oblique views are very important to take. And there are studies showing that um, information in these views far exceeds that that can be acquired with any other view of the foot combined, including uh, skylines and um, the various different upright projections. And although he didn't discuss ungular cartilages, I did myself do a study um, a few years ago on ossification of the ungular cartilages. And several of these, I think about 20 or so, had um, fractures associated with the ungular cartilages and or the ossified portions of the ungular cartilages. And this was actually the only projection where every single one of these fractures could be identified on radiography. And so again, if there's ossification of the ungular cartilages, these are really important to include. Moving on, um, he discussed uh, images of the carpus. Now, I think the addition of flex lateral medials um, can be really useful. It separates articular surfaces of the small carpal bones and can give that extra little bit of information uh, in comparison with weight-bearing images. I think this also um, begs us to, to consider the question of, well, if extra information comes from a flex view of the carpus, as opposed to a weight-bearing view of the carpus, should we be replacing our weight-bearing view of the carpus with non-weight-bearing flex views? Um, I think that's quite an interesting question, and I know a lot of people will use flex lateral medials instead of um, weight-bearing, but certainly if there's any suspicion of small carpal bone um, articular surface damage or involvement or osteoarthritis, then addi the addition of a flex lateral medial view can be hugely valuable. Now, another one that perhaps I think people do tend to use, especially if you're in um, racehorse practice, would be the skyline views, again, of the carpal bone rose and the distal aspect of the humerus. Adding to this, it is also possible to, to take, as well as the skyline view, take that skyline from a slight angle, for example, laterally, by about sort of 15 to 35 degrees. And... So you're adding to the skyline a little bit of obliquity, and that is really good for incomplete fractures. And he and Jonathan did show some examples of a standard skyline view, which we use specifically for this instance, and then comparing it to a skyline view with a little bit of laterality. And actually, it really does highlight the fracture quite nicely. So I think that's quite a nice one to keep in mind. 
he then went on to discuss radiography of the pelvis. Now, this is something that's performed very frequently. Um, a sort of a ventrodorsal radiograph of the pelvis of a horse generally requires uh, general anesthesia, which, of course, is um, a major blocker for us performing this in practice. However, it can be quite useful um, for foals um, in, in the cases where, where you do want to image this region. But also, it's possible to radiograph the coxofemoral joint to a certain degree. Now, of course, this is horse and equipment dependent. We would have to be shooting through a very thick portion of horse. And so unless you've got a, a high-powered gantry-mounted uh, generator, then generally doing this practice is this in the field is quite difficult to almost impossible unless it's a smaller horse um, for example where you might be able to get a good diagnostic quality image um, but he discussed the use of a ventrodorsal for uh, the coxofemoral joint and so basically shooting up from underneath the horse but also a slightly different view so coming from the contralateral side of, of interest so for the other side to the hip that you're interested in angling down by 20 degrees and again that can give some quite useful information with regards to the hip joint. Now of course hip joint pathology and, and pain causing lameness localised to the hip is really quite unusual and generally when it is present the pathology that we see can be quite substantial and marked and so although it's quite, it's quite a difficult place to image generally if there is genuine pathology there if we could get a good enough quality image, despite the limitations, um, that can give some really useful information. For example, if there is a subluxation or dislocation of the hip itself, or if there is um, quite marked osteoarthritis. And so those are typically the changes that we'll be looking for. Just coming from a position of not having done a lot of equine practice myself, if you've got an area that's quite deep such as the hip with an unusual or rare presentation so primary pathology of the hip causing pain in a horse would you go about it primarily via scintigraphy or, or would somebody go at it from more of a sort of unusual x-ray position view uh, which which direction would you kind of approach this in um well, I think the first thing to consider would be whether diagnostic anesthesia of the joint, so intraarticular analgesia, is um, appropriate and can be useful. Again, I think it's really important when it comes to labour and poor performance to prove that it is actually a source of pain rather than just pathology, because pathology and abnormalities and imaging abnormalities can exist and do exist quite commonly in the absence of pain. So the first thing would definitely be to ascertain that the pain really is coming from the hip, from a combination of eliminating uh, more distant sources of pain through perineal analgesia and also potentially intraarticular analgesia of the coxofemoral joint itself. With regards to imaging, um, radiography can be really useful, but as I said, you will most in most cases require a high-powered gantry mounted unit so we're talking something at a clinic or a hospital rather than what you have in the field unless it's a particularly small not particularly well muscled horse and the other thing to consider would be ultrasonography um, the abaxial aspects of the coxofemoral joint can be imaged and again quite a lot of important information can be acquired from that 
again, it, it is a relatively deep structure. And so you would need access to a low frequency probe, usually a convex probe. Um, with regards to scintigraphy, that certainly can be useful when it comes to diagnosing coxfemoral joint pathology. The thing to be wary about is that scintigraphy is a physiological imaging modality. And so what it's telling you is whether there is increased bone turnover. And so if the pathology causing pain is um, concurrently causing increased bone turnover, then yes, you'll get increased radiopharmaceutical uptake or a hot spot there. But it is not uncommon for pathology to be present, which is causing pain and is significant in the absence of any scintigraphic abnormalities. And I think that's particularly true with anything that is relatively chronic and in mature sports horses. If perhaps it was an acute onset issue, potentially, if there is, um, for example, fracture in that region, that's something that we would expect there to be increased bone turnover. Um, and again, things like if there is a dislocation, we wouldn't, we we might be able to appreciate. Um, a diff difference in position or in, of anatomy but again that can probably be just as easily identified using other imaging modalities. Thanks Laura that's an excellent run through of some of those views it's very interesting hearing about um, all the different uh, the potentially different sort of alternative or unconventional views it makes you sort of wonder when the, the a lot of views probably started unconventional and then became conventional over time I probably just like to say that sometimes the thought of uh, working out the different angles for some of these views might mean that to me every one of these views would be a stressed view. Uh, but uh, it's a good run through of uh, what is quite a complex topic. And I thought you did an excellent job of describing it for a podcast because it's really hard to do these things verbally and work out sometimes where these projections are coming from and going to as well. Um, so it was quite an interesting take on some of the equine lectures. What about handing over to, to Harriet and some of the small animal topics? What did you think about um, some of the small animal CPD that was on offer and some of the take home points for the lectures you saw? Yes, definitely. So I was stuck to small animal this year and two lectures that I found particularly interesting. One was uh, an orthopaedic lecture by Dr. Richard Meeson and I'm not an orthopod at all. Um, but his was more about, you know, there's more than one op option of fixing, fixing or dealing with a fracture in general practice rather than having the fracture arrive. There being huge panic because there's a fracture and completely actually forgetting about the animal that the fracture's attached to. So his main take home with, with this lecture was really we need to focus on the animal and treat any initial life-threatening injuries before thinking about the fracture. Um, you know, if there is a large wound or an open fracture, just cover it and then stabilise the animal and then come back to it and decontaminate it. And one of his main points, and I think this is an important one, especially as a new grad, um, and especially when you've got an owner pressurising you that emergency fractures are few and far between. It may seem like an emergency at the time, um, but unless it is a fractured growth plate, um, it's an articular fracture, or you suspect there's a nerve damage, uh, nerve entrapment, um, surgery isn't required, you know, as soon as possible. And some fractures can wait three to five days before being fixed. Um, 
his other take-home messages were really there's you know most fractures can be accurately evaluated using plain radiographs you don't need ct for all of them um and his he had 10 rules of thumb so always ga them if they're stable enough always obtain orthogonal views um always center on the area of trauma and in this case catagrams are acceptable um in these situations not always but in these situations they are um Remember, always take that contralateral limb, especially in cases of breed variation, growth plate lines, just lets you know what is normal in the other leg and what you're looking at is abnormal. Um, if the joints are involved, a bit like Laura's saying with stress views, consider doing some stress views um, and you can achieve them using sandbags. And remember that, you know, micropore tapes, sandbags, wedges are your friends. They will help you get that limb into the correct position that you need it to be. And although we don't want you guys to irradiate yourselves, your diagnostic radiographs need to be exactly that, diagnostic. Um, and if you don't get them first time, that's fine, but you do need to repeat them to get that straight through, especially in cases of articular fractures. Um, because if you take an x-ray and it's not diagnostic, really, you know, yes, you know there's a fracture, but the surgeon can't then use that x-ray to, you know, measure for selecting implants. So in the case of that, you might as well repeat it, get the diagnostic x-ray that you need, and then save time later down the line. Um, he, was, he was also, um, you know, kind of drumming home that you might need to angle the be your, your beam differently or take the x-ray from a different orientation. So, for example, you know, sometimes you can take x-rays of femurs in dorsal recumbency and you get the view that you want. Sometimes, you know, you need to get a better view in ventral recumbency. And another one is... If there is any significant trauma or there it's an unobserved cause of the fracture, please take a thoracic radiograph just to make sure um, there's uh, nothing going on in that chest. I was just going to say it's quite interesting when you're, men you're mentioning sort of, again, thinking about the kind of position of the the sort of injury or the pathology and just for positioning for the x-rays because it feeds a little bit back onto what sort of Laura was mentioning in the equine views and these unconventional views that it, it's really taking a sort of rather than just considering a radiographic projection as a very sort of set prescribed lateral lateral projection or dorsal ventral projection is trying to think about the um the where the pathology is or where the expected injury is and optimizing your projection for that and it's quite interesting and this is just me kind of musing on this. It's quite interesting just thinking about it sometimes in that way, because I think it's quite easy when you're doing radiography to just get caught in this, this I suppose it's not a trap, but a, a kind of convention of taking the set views, which obviously have their uses and we've been done them for a long period of time. But it's quite interesting seeing these and thinking about the pathology and the anatomy together to inform how you arrange both the, uh, the the generator and the plate to get the view that, that you want. And it's maybe one of those things that can be applied in a lot of situations sometimes when we are thinking about pathology is thinking about where where we are angling the the uh, the direction of our x-ray air x-ray beam to get the projection that we want and it's just quite quite interesting that this is something that's being discussed more than relying on just those typical typical standard projections. It's actually interesting you say you say that. Um, actually, during the lecture, um, Richard Meeson suggested that if you are ever suspect, suspected of, you know, a fractured pelvis, you always need to take a frog leg view because so commonly 
do you miss acetabular fractures? Because you just take, you know, that typical straight-legged view and you miss the, and yes, you might see, you know, an ilium fracture or a pubic fracture, but you'll miss that acetabular fracture by not doing them frog-legged. But further to that, so especially if the fracture is not particularly displaced, then to be able to see it radiographically, you have to be parallel to that plane of fracture. And so often taking, you know, probably the view where you're most suspicious of seeing a fracture and taking sequential views, even just two to three degrees apart, suddenly you'll find you, you can't really see it very clearly, you can't see it very clearly, and then suddenly you just take that one view where you're you're completely perpendicular the beam is perpendicular so parallel to the plane of fracture and suddenly you can see it really clearly and suddenly you can determine you know is it articular where where what else is involved you know is it comminuted you so taking different views that are non-conventional i think are really important for fractures absolutely and then it just helps you manage you know plan how you're going to manage that fracture whether it's you know something that can be cast or whether it's something that needs an external fixator um, you know it needs um, internal plates and screws or you know it's something completely out of the realm, realms of general practice and it needs to be referred by just being able to identify the exact location and what's involved and um, gives you a much better idea of how to plan for it um, another Another point that he really drummed home on is, and we learn about it at vet school, is your pre, your breed predilections. So, you know, your spaniels and your Frenchies and their, you know, humeral condyle fractures, um, and your toy breeds, and his, you know, they just go out for a walk and fall over and they end up with a um, ulnar and radius fracture or a condylar fracture. If you've got a puppy and a kitten, you know, common things are common. It's probably going to be a growth plate fracture and if you've got an ex-racing greyhound, you know, an acute distal limb lameness, it could be, you know, they're prone to stress fractures from, you know, repetitive, um, high, high, high intensity work. And also quite commonly in the greyhounds as they get older, they are, um, you know, osteosarcomas are high on the list if you do get an acute lameness. Well, that concludes our roundup of some of this year's London Vet Show CPD. Only a small snippet of the CPD that was on offer. And we, of course, we didn't have other bits and lectures that we missed um, from there. But thanks to everyone who's listened to this month's uh, IMV Imaging Focal Point podcast. And we will be back next month with another episode. So stay tuned. Until then, if you've got any questions or queries, you can check out our website or our social media platforms. You can get in touch with the clinical team directly on clinical at imv-imaging.com. And that just leaves me to say goodbye from the team and to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. So I'll let the team say goodbye themselves after this and we'll see you later. Bye from me. Bye, everyone. And it's goodbye from me.